Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Assistant Director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great work by being done by folks who have received support in different ways from the Hagley Center. One such scholar joins me today. Dr. Cynthia B. Myers is Professor Emerita of Communication, Art, and Media at College of Mount St. Vincent. Cynthia, Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, let's start by uh, painting with broad strokes, so to speak. What is it that you are currently researching and writing about? Well, I research the history of advertising agencies and their role in American broadcasting. And I argue that it, they essentially built American commercial broadcasting. Uh, they were very involved in the creation of programs in the 1930s, 40s, and 1950s. Therefore, they were the ones actually producing. Uh, J. Walter Thompson produced Craft Music Hall, and BBDO famously produced Cavalcade of America, which we'll come back to. Um, so they were very involved in shaping popular culture as well as advertising texts. Um, and also, they were really um, important in terms of shaping um, the development of 20th century capitalism. They were advising the leaders um, BBDO in particular was deeply involved in public relations, uh, corporate uh, image advertising, then called institutional advertising. They were helping with merchandising, marketing, um, product development. BBDO had a test kitchen for Betty Crocker products. They were actually testing recipes. Um, they were deeply involved in all sorts of activities that shaped 20th century American capitalism or business uh, industries, uh, particularly consumer products, but uh, lo lots of things. Um, so I look at their radio and television work, um, and I was at Hagley looking at BBDO in particular. Now, BBDO happens to be one of my favorite ad agencies because uh, they were one of the most important ad agencies in the 20th century. Their clients included General Motors, General Electric, DuPont, U.S. Steel, um, then they went on American Tobacco, uh, Lever Brothers. Um, some of the largest and most important American corporations were clients of BBDO. And um, BBDO is, is key to understanding mm -hmm. how the ad industry developed and how, um, how a number of major American corporations communicated about themselves to the public. Mm -hmm. Well, for those not familiar, could you introduce us to the firm BBDNO? Sure. So it starts as the George Batten Company back in 1891. And at Hagley, we actually have a bunch of Batten documents. So if you're interested in 19th century advertising, mm -hmm. um, Batten was uh, a pioneer in advertising in religious media, actually, publications, magazines, newspapers. So we have amazing Hagley has amazing uh, material on that. Um, in 1918, Bruce Barton, Roy Durstein, and Alex Osborne got together and created what they called BDO. And then they merged with Batten in 1928. Bruce Barton is the most famous of the founders. He wrote the 1925 book, The Man Nobody Knows, which is about Jesus Christ sort of being an ad man. Um, but I really have to emphasize here that at that time, they saw their job as 
advertising as a service, advertising as informational, advertising as an uplifting form of content mm. that would sort of acclimate um, and clue consumers in um, to you know the modern world. Um, and Bruce Barton in particular talked a lot about how advertising would prevent fraud because manufacturers would have to be honest and make informational claims that consumers could test for themselves. And he really, they, they, they talked a lot about advertising as, you know, being something that would improve business and improve um, the consumer experience. Mm-hmm. Roy, um, Alex Osborne um, was the inventor of brainstorming. If you've ever heard that term, mm-hmm. brainstorming, which is a group of people get in a room and they just throw ideas around and the more the better. Um, Alex Osborne developed this technique and it's still used in many corporations, not just ad agencies today. So if you're at all interested in, you know, how companies have tried to come up with ideas or come up with, um, you know, ways to solve problems, you want to look at Alex Osborne and a lot of his writings and speeches and materials are at the Hagley. Finally, Roy Durstein, the the fourth founder I'm going to mention, um, leaves the agency in 1939. But before that, he's the new media guy. He's the one pushing the ad agency into radio, which was a brand new it's new medium. It was like the internet of the 1920s and that nobody really knew how to use it. Nobody knew how to commercialize it. Nobody knew how to monetize it. And he was one of the people really arguing that advertisers needed to buy airtime and use it to promote themselves. Um, and to create relationships with consumers so that consumers could feel good about mm. that, you know, the company, their client. Um, he was also very involved in film. They had an industrial film department. They made minute movies that were shown in movie theaters. So they were very new media oriented. And one of the uh, radio shows that I've written about that BBDO produced, and by produced, I mean produced, they wrote them, they cast them, they scripted them. They scored the music. Arthur Pryor, who was the head of the radio department, was actually writing the music for these live nationally broadcast television shows. So one of the ones they did was March of Time. So you might have heard of the newsreel, the March of Time. But before it was a filmed newsreel, it was a radio show that BBDO produced for Time magazine. And it was a kind of journalism that is, uh, let's say, out of favor today, but not Really, it was a docudrama. It was scripted nonfiction. So it was fictionalized nonfiction. So they had actors pretending to be President Roosevelt or Hitler. And Hitler always spoke with a German accent, which Mm -hmm. I always found very amusing. So they were really, really important to understanding not just how new media like radio and then television developed, but they were the ones who were also trying to figure out how to make it work how to appeal to audiences. They didn't just put stuff on the air and say, okay, you know, you should believe that DuPont is a great company. Um, they were a little more subtle than that. They created Cavalcade of America. And again, the DuPont papers and the BBDO papers have a lot of information about why and how they created that program. It was a docudrama about the history of American technology, right? Because DuPont was an important early technology company and chemical company. And BBDO, by the way, was the agency that came up with better living through chemistry, um, that slogan. Uh, Better things for better living through chemistry. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's Mm -hmm. that's what it is. 
So um, when they created Cavalcade of America, DuPont, you know, was on the defensive um, after a number of hearings accusing it of being, you know, a, a, you know, having done the wrong thing during World War One. And um, so merchants of death, I think, was the phrase. Um, so it was a it was a, a public relations effort. It was an educational effort. It was an advertising effort. It was an entertainment effort. So by the 1940s, they hired top uh, movie stars to come on and do these live broadcasts where they were reading these docudrama scripts and pretending to be Abraham Lincoln. And Raymond Massey was Abraham Lincoln. And, um, you know, and, and, and I think that what's really interesting to me about this is how using entertainment to um, inform the public um, and, and, and realizing that just lecturing or just being didactic um, wasn't good enough to sort of convey or engage uh, with the public. And so another reason that I study advertising is because I think it's the, the media industry that is most upfront about what it's trying to do, which is mm -hmm. to attract audience attention and try to get us to pay attention to, you know, products or, you know, or corporate image, but often it's, they use strategies that are common in all sorts of other media as well, um, in terms of narrative strategies or emotional appeals mm. or, or what have you. Mm. So I, I encourage um, scholars to open their minds to looking not just at the advertising agencies, but at the advertising itself, because when a company decides to advertise and they choose an agency, they choose an agency often based on that agency's ad strategies. So BBDO was really famous for institutional or corporate image advertising. That is, if you wanted to burnish your corporate image for the public, you went to BBDO. Um, Young Rubicam was really famous for soft sell where they were really uh, humorous and tongue in cheek and ironic. Um, so they, they were producing Jack Benny and Fred Allen on 30s and 40s radio um, where they did a lot of spoofing of advertising. Um, J. Walter Thompson was really famous for using celebrities. So they had lots and lots of stars. Craft Music Hall was hosted by Bing Crosby. So each of these agencies reflects something um, on the corporation that hires them. So a company mm -hmm. that hires an agency is also saying something about what it thinks of itself, you know, what it wants to convey to the public. And so if you start to look at the agency and the advertising, you can get a sense of how the corporate leadership is um, imagining itself. Like what, it, not just in terms of, you know, making itself look good, but it's thinking in terms of how it's thinking about its market and its uh, consumer, um, how it's identifying who those people are um, in part by the advertising strategies they use and the ad agencies that they, that they choose. So I'm just going to go right ahead and make another pitch for using ad agency archives, which mm -hmm. is that um, there are not that many of them. Uh, Walter Thompson down at Duke University is the most complete archive that we have of 20th century advertising agency practice. Um, and they have records about, you know, Ford and Kraft and uh, Lever Brothers, you know, major uh, companies. Um, but BBDO is now at Hagley. And I, I think it's really important that um, uh, scholars understand that it's hard to figure out 
which ad agency was involved with which client. And then if they're involved in a client, um, so for example, BBDO had uh, Lever Brothers, but so did J. Walter Thompson, um, different products were, were handled by different agencies. And then often the clients or the advertisers would rotate the products among different ad agencies. So Procter & Gamble would switch, you know, products among agents. They had like seven different agencies. So it's not a simple matter to kind of um, connect the agency, the ad, the product, and the company. And the other problem is that um, ad agencies never got public attribution. So if you go to a movie, you see, you know, this is produced by Warner Brothers, right? You know, the studio, you know, the director, you know, the screenwriter, et cetera, et cetera. You have metadata on the screen. Uh, when you watch a television commercial or look at a magazine ad, there's no metadata there. The only information you have is the product name. Um, and in, in the age of conglomeration or in the age of massive consumer packaged goods companies like Procter & Gamble and Lever Brothers, you don't even know which brands go with which uh, company because there's so many of them. Procter & Gamble has hundreds of brands, right? So there's no public attribution. And this was especially true on radio and television where BBDO was producing the March of Time, but there's there's nothing at the end. It says, this is brought to you by the editors of Time. <laughs> and yes, the editors of Time told them which stories to cover that week, but it was BBDO that was actually scripting it and inventing it and producing it. There was no, you know, BBDO personnel actually made this program. So very few people are aware of just how important a role ad agencies have played in popular culture in, in, in American uh, media. So when you get to the 1950s and 60s, the ad agencies stop doing the script writing. They just do the oversight, which is that they're making sure that the programs aren't going to reflect badly um, on their Clients. So BBDO is working with Armstrong Cork and the David Susskind Production Company, and they're saying, no, 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 we can't do a show um, about race, you know, race, because the Southern uh, uh, stations will cancel the show. So they're they're very carefully watching and um, making sure that nothing goes through that they think might reflect badly on their client. But they are overseeing programs. So BBDO was overseeing um, uh, Lassie for Campbell Soup for a while. Uh, mm -hmm. They were overseeing General Electric Theater, um, uh, U.S. Steel's Theater Guild on the Air, which then turned into U.S. Steel Hour. And of course, for DuPont, they kept doing Cavalcade, which then turned into the DuPont Show, which then turned into the DuPont Show of the Month, and so on. So they were very involved all the way up through the mid to late 60s in overseeing the, the program content um, for their clients. And then by the 1960s, um, it's the rise of the age of the commercial. And this is also really interesting with BBDO. They got the Pepsi account in the 1960s. And if you've ever seen any Pepsi advertising, uh, most of it was created at BBDO. So all the pop stars who changed their pop song lyrics uh, like Michael Jackson and Madonna. They were starting that in the early 60s. Pepsi, for those who think young, the Pepsi generation. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, but I think it's a really major uh, late 20th century set of cultural texts that um, definitely deserves a, a book or two 
uh, to analyze the role of BBDO in, in those um, kinds of campaigns. They also got really involved in market research. They got interested in management science, um, optimization, computerization. Uh, they were one of the first agencies to buy a giant computer to you know, figure out what media to buy, that is where to buy airtime on TV uh, most of the time. Um, they were the ones who were um, doing all sorts of quantitative and qualitative market research. So mm -hmm. at Hagley, there's a huge number of marketing research studies for all different kinds of products. Um, they did whole product categories, shampoo, you know, margarine, um, automobiles. Uh, they had the Dodge uh, account for a while, and they had an account called Dodge Fever with sexy girls in hot pants on top of uh, Dodge cars. They, they became one of the largest television commercial production companies mm -hmm. so that um, hundreds and hundreds of different commercials every year they produced. Um, but you never knew when you were watching a TV commercial in the 60s whether or not you're watching a BBDO commercial. So it's only if you go into the archives that you can start making those connections. You can say, oh, I know BBDO had the Pepsi account. You know, let me go look at all these Pepsi ads and Pepsi commercials and let me try to connect some dots here. Also, um, it, at Hagley, um, uh, they have what are called tear sheets. So every time a BBDO created print ad would run in a magazine like Saturday Evening Post or Life magazine, um, somebody would tear out that piece of paper with the ad and they'd put it in a file folder marked with that client and they'd put the date on it. Hmm. This is extraordinarily useful because then you could know, like especially when you know accounts would shift around, you could say, okay, now I know that BBDO actually made this particular Lever Brothers soap ad as opposed to J. Walter Thompson because now I have it in, in the tear sheet um, files. Um, so uh, that, that's just some of the stuff that you can find. Uh, on top of that, there's a, a many, many speeches. So I, I need to warn people who are interested in the BBDO um, records that it's not um, a depository of the central files of the agency. So you're not going to file the account, the account executive memos, really. You're not going to find the sort of internal um, documents. But what you will find is what was kept by the library. BBDO had this one of the largest corporate libraries in the ad industry, and they kept a lot of stuff. So they kept a huge number of publications, both coming out of their, their own agency, but from other agencies as well. They kept all the speeches. So their leaders were constantly giving speeches about issues of the day. Um, so Tom Dillon, who was leading the agency in the 60s, is giving all these speeches about how, you know, the youth market is a joke and we got to ignore all those people with long hair. Um, you know, so the sort of social tensions among, uh, you know, within the ad industry as it starts going through a big change in the 1960s are, are all there in, in, in these records. Um, and also... Um, uh, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, it's okay. I'm sitting here listening and it seems like ad advertising agency archives are uniquely positioned to be a rich source for no matter what your 
particular interest is in business or culture or any number of different areas of research, you can use this collection to start getting at them. And it's that's just so fascinating. It's such a, a unique resource. Oh, I just remember what I was going to mention. Another really, really interesting, I think, resource in the BBDO records mm -hmm. are their house organs. House organ is the word that we use to describe the internal newsletters. And these newsletters were designed for the employees. They were not designed for the public. In fact, many of them say on it, destroy after reading. Um, but um, in the records, we have um, uh, runs from the 1920s through the 1990s. Wow. So 70 years of reporting on not just what BBDO was doing, but also what was going on in the industry, um, what their ad strategies were, what their campaigns were, their clients. And that is kind of, I look at the newsletters as kind of the spine of trying to build a narrative because it's in the newsletters that I can find, you know, dates and names and events and, you know, for me, programs and uh, people's names. Uh, because it was in the newsletter that you often found out who was actually doing the ad campaign or, you know, writing the March of Time mm -hmm. or whatever it was. It's in the newsletter because they're bragging, you know, employees are are being celebrated to the other employees. And none of that was in public, you know, maybe in some of the trade magazines. But a lot of that information's not in the trade magazines. It was only um, publicized internally. And again, that goes back to that problem of, ever being able to find attribution for any kind of advertising um, text, it's, it's always uh, difficult, which is why I always tell people who are interested in researching anything about advertising is to start with documentation, start with what exists. And the BBDO records are a great place to start. You go in there and you try to find out what they have. And I actually had the opportunity to see this material when it was still at BBDO and I generated a number of articles about it because I didn't even know the Armstrong Circle Theater was a news docudrama live on television in the 1950s that was produced by BBDO until I was going through their records. And I was like, well, this is an interesting story. And I published an article in Business History Review about that effort to, um, you know, polish Armstrong's corporate image and also inform the public about the issues of the day and the importance of overcoming adversity. Um, and that's also when I found out about March of Time. I had no idea March of Time was produced by BBDO until I was looking you know, through their boxes and found a file of information about it. So I usually tell people, don't go into any kind of archive really saying, I wanna tell a story about X, uh, except in a general sense, uh, go into that archive and say, you know, I went in saying, well, I'm interested in radio and television. What can I find? And mm -hmm. what I found was stuff about, you know, those particular programs. I didn't find other things. I only found one thing, the General Motors video program, which was about uh, the idea of selling traveling by car. It was written by Bruce Barton rather than selling the cars. Uh, so I didn't really find that much about that program. So if I went in saying, I want to write an article about that General Motors program, I would have been disappointed. I would have only found the one thing. So I, I just encourage people to, to be open uh, to that serendipity and be willing to see the story 
when you find uh, something like that in an archive, rather than go into an archive and and be frustrated that it doesn't have, you know, the entire backstory. You know, I, there's not a lot of memos that tell you a lot about, say, the relationship between, you know, Alex Osborne and Bruce Barton. You know, everything was kind of designed um, to um, document the agency's successes uh, rather than its failures, um, and also to document. Um, you know, how they evolved over time. Um, so a lot of the material was stuff that the uh, public relations department at BBDO kept. So they're not going to keep the stuff that's ugly. So for example, Roy Durstein was forced out in 1939. And there's not a lot in the records about why. There's a little bit, um, but it's the kind of thing that they were very embarrassed about. Um, I, uh, he, you know, the agency was about to go bankrupt in part because his idea of running the agency was that everybody did everything all the time. So an account executive, instead of just interfacing with the client and going out to you know dinner with them, was also supposed to be creating the ads. And then the people who were writing the ads were also supposed to interface with it. It was very confusing. Hmm. And, um, and he, his management style was apparently um, harming the economic health of the agency. So they forced him out, but they don't, they don't want to talk about why, you know, except in a general sense, they don't want to get, you know, there's, there's gossip out there. Uh, you can dig around, but what I'm trying to say, you're not going to find the gossip in these mm -hmm. records. Mm -hmm. You're going to kind of find the public facing version of things, but that doesn't mean that it's not useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It would seem that um, this firm that, was chiefly involved in managing the public face of other firms would also be very self-conscious as it were of managing its own image. Yes. And in fact, um, one of the things I learned was that they're kind of embarrassed about how old they are. I mean, 1891 mm. was a long time ago <laughs> <laughs> and the ad industry is very much a forward facing industry. They're always cutting edge. They're always doing the next new thing and they don't like to pitch themselves as being old hat. Um, and so one reason it's really hard to find any kind of archival material for an ad agency is that they kind of want to hide their old stuff. Mm -hmm. They're afraid that people will make fun of it or it'll make them look bad. And as everybody knows, I mean, ads of the 19th, you know, the 20th century are full of racism and sexism and whatever kind of ism, you know, ethnic uh, mm -hmm. stereotypes, what, you know, because that was you know, that was acceptable at that time in that context. And they thought those kinds of images would appeal to the markets they were trying to appeal to. The fact that they don't work anymore doesn't mean that they didn't exist. So as an historian, you have to go back and say, yeah, this is what they were doing. This is why they were doing it. They mm -hmm. thought this would make some people feel good and buy the product. Um, so that's another big reason that ad agencies don't tend to talk a huge amount about their history. Hmm. They only talk about sort of the, the good stuff or the stuff that doesn't make them look bad. Um, they're very selective, like when they do these kind of um, uh, credentials, which are pamphlets in which they talk about the kinds of campaigns they've done. And most of those are designed to show to potential clients. Um, you know, they, they don't show the stuff that makes them 
look in any way, shape or form bad. So um, what you're going to find in records like BBDO is somewhat sanitized, but that doesn't mean that you can't, as a researcher, triangulate, use other sources, draw your own conclusions and analysis from what you're looking at. Um, we're not talking about a hypodermic needle theory of communication in which you look at a racist ad and you become racist. You know, you, you recognize it for what it is and then you discuss it. So Pepsi, for example, is a really interesting company in how they did parallel advertising for uh, what they call the special markets, um, which is the African-American market and white markets. BBDO was a pioneer in marketing to African-Americans as a white ad agency. They were the first one to hire um, an African-American as an executive, you know, rather than as a janitor or a porter. Um, that was back in the 50s, Clarence Holt. Um, they also um, were one of the few agencies that had a top uh, woman executive, Jean Rinlaub. Um, she uh, started there in the 30s, and by the 1950s, she was on the executive committee. And of course, she specialized in marketing to housewives. Um, she ran focus groups within the agencies of women all over the all over the agency, whether they were secretaries or copywriters or you know uh, coffee girls or whatever. Um, and she was really influential. She ran the Betty Crocker cake mix ads in the early 50s. Um, so if you're interested in some of those issues, you will find material in the BBDL records that can help you not only um, flesh out that story a little bit more, but bring a different perspective to it. Uh, Jean Rinlaub's ideas about how her advertising work was helping women um, helping expand options for housewives, um, I think is you know really interesting to try to understand within the context of her era. It seems like that claim has really come up quite a few times that um, ad agencies, in particular the folks at BB and DNO, are making the claim that they're doing a social good, that they're providing a service, that they're there's even um, an underlying claim of pedagogical function. Uh, going on here. Uh, could you perhaps uh, unpack that a little bit further for us? Yes, absolutely. It's really hard for us to imagine this today um, mm -hmm. after over 100 years of right. mass advertising. Right. But in the 19th century, advertising uh, was kind of crude and a lot of it was just out and out fraudulent. Uh, before we had the Federal Trade Commission, before we had the uh, Food and Drug Act, uh, patent medicines were the top advertisers in a lot of print media. And it was just fraudulent, 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 fraudulent. Um, and the problem was, is that consumers, you know, a lot of them figured out uh, that a lot of this was just fraudulent. So advertising had a very bad reputation as just being a place where crooks and swindlers went to try to, you know, swindle people. And so um, at the turn of the 20th century, there was a big effort to professionalize advertising to make it more respectable. And part of that was to do what, you know, people like Bruce Barton did, who by the way, was a former journalist like Roy Durstein was, um, in that he said, you know, instead of doing all this fraudulent stuff, what we need to do is be honest, sincere, truthful, and we need to change this whole view of advertising as being, you know, the realm of fakery. You know, we need, to, we really need to, you know, uplift, um, our history. And we need to um, 
advertising can hold manufacturers accountable, right? So if a manufacturer makes a claim in an ad for its product and then it, you know, that doesn't do that, um, what Bruce Barton is saying is, well, if we advertise honestly, um, then the consumer will begin to trust what we're saying. So it's about building trust. And also remember in this sort of turn of the 20th century, you know, industrialization, urbanization, all those fun things, right? Um, uh, mass production. Um, a lot of people have written about this as sort of creating a consumer culture or, oh, propagandizing consumption. Um, but I take a different view of it, which is that um, when you look back at that period, there really was this conundrum about, well, how do you build, you know, an economy that's based on mass production, you know, and how do you bring um, the, uh, the advantages of packaged goods to people who might otherwise not not trust the packaged good because of course mm -hmm. they'd lived through patent medicines. Patent medicines were packaged goods that were frauds, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's about this process of building credibility, and this is true of the news media as well. You know, newspapers in the 19th century printed tons of lies and myths and propaganda. You know, there, there was no sort of uh, fact checking. Uh, Truthfulness was not really a, a major concern. It was mm -hmm. more about selling papers. Um, but when in the early 20th century, you have a kind of collaboration between the ad industry and the news media to, to create um, more credibility for both. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have the rise of objectivity in news media and journalism. You know, you have the New York Times, you know, all that's fit to print. And this goes hand in hand with the advertising industry, likewise saying, look, you can read our ad and trust it. And the news, news industry is saying, you can read our news article and trust it. So both industries worked in collaboration to kind of build a more trustworthy, credible, uh, believable, um, uh, you know, kind of informational style. And because at that time, information about products and kind of training consumers on how to use products or why they, you know, why it's more important to use Rinso um, as opposed to another laundry soap. Um, they used a very didactic reason why style of advertising. Use Rinso because it doesn't make your hands red. It gets your sheets white. Um, it's fast. It makes lots of suds. So it's very informational. And today, when we look back at those old ads, they look kind of silly to us because we're used to ads that are not informational at all. We're used to ads that all are all about emotional appeal. So McDonald's ad will be about a family bonding over their Big Macs and uh, a Pepsi ad will be about young people having fun and uh, a Ford ad will be about how much fun it is to drive the car. And there's no perfect mm -hmm. information there at all. And that's because the ad industry since the 1960s has you know, pretty much moved away from product information in large part because they found that... Um, uh, by the mid 20th century, consumers had become a little bit jaundiced uh, or less uh, less believing of the mm -hmm. product uh, claims because a lot of product claims were still full of hyperbole. You know, nine out of 10 doctors recommend, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. lucky strikes are good for your throat. I mean, come on. Um, and so when they move away from that and go into the emotional appeals, you can't prove or disprove an emotional appeal. 
You can't say, no, families don't bond when they go to McDonald's, right? <laughs> you just go, oh, that feels good. Oh, you're watching it and you sort of get the feeling and it has nothing to do with the product, but it makes you feel good. And so a lot of advertising is really designed to push certain emotional but buttons with the mm -hmm. viewer. And it's not really about the product. Uh, it's just a, an association. Like mm -hmm. you can feel good about McDonald's because McDonald's cares about families and McDonald's wants families to be together and, and so on. So, so this whole shift takes place in the mid 20th century, but everything before that looks very odd to us. And I think, uh, especially when historians go back and look at that era, they, they see it as disingenuous. They see it as kind of, I don't want to say conspiratorial, but they see it as this is propaganda for mm. consumption. And I look at it from a different perspective, which is coming out of the patent medicine era. This is less conspiratorial and propagandistic and more about, you know, creating a sense of credibility, um, not just about among advertising and news media, but also in terms of this whole system of mass production. And mm -hmm. that raised living standards for most Americans, many Americans. And so when people like Bruce Barton would talk about, you know, how great all of this is, um, it's sort of easy to laugh at him in retrospect, because of course we know the underbelly um, of the fact that some of the people whose boats didn't rise with the tide, um, you know, the racial exclusionary policies, the so on and so forth. But I think that even though it's easy for us to point out the hypocrisies, I think it's also important for us to take seriously um, some of their beliefs that they weren't disingenuous, that they really thought that they were building a better world than the 19th century had been. Well, Cynthia, what a rich set of sources. And thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us today. It's just fascinating. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I hope you've inspired lots of folks to come to Hagley and use the BBDNO collection and our other related collections. Um, for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>